Welcome to the Lab Life Podcast, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Song. I'm an aspiring research scientist, an undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University, studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my weekly research journey and share lessons I've learned in the lab. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 4, Overcoming Hurdles and Finding Motivation When You're Stuck With Research. Last episode, I heavily alluded to the idea that research, especially at the undergraduate level, takes a lot of time, and you'll often find yourself facing tough research questions where the answer is not at all obvious. In part one, we will talk about how to overcome these difficult moments during your research. In part two, I'll share my weekly updates with my research at Boystown, including some of my preliminary findings correlating working memory to TDCS, as well as the research study that I participated in this week. So without further ado, let's discuss. In part one, we're going to talk about overcoming hurdles with your research. As an undergraduate, there will be many moments where you are stuck or don't know how to proceed with your research. Examples of this include when you don't know what type of statistical test to conduct with your data analysis, when you're unable to obtain results, or when you have obtained results but you don't know how to interpret your findings. I like to personally classify these research hurdles into two different types pre-result hurdles and post-result hurdles. First, let's talk about pre-results, meaning that you're stuck before even coming to any results in the first place. Now, one big reason why undergraduate researchers tend to be stuck in the pre-results phase is when they do not have a clear experimental paradigm. Now, what does this mean? This means that they don't have an exact sense of direction with the type of experiments they want to conduct and the type of data analysis that they want to pursue. An experimental paradigm is incredibly important. Without one, you essentially have no direction to take your research. Now, how does one create an experimental paradigm? The main way that I recommend doing this is by getting a good sense of the literature and reading as many papers as possible. This way, you can find inspiration from how other researchers in the past have conducted their experiments and what their experimental paradigm looks like. Once you have a general idea of what other research has done, you want to create a quote-unquote tree for your experimental pipeline. Now, what does this mean? Well, a tree has multiple branches, and similarly, your research should also have multiple branches or avenues that you can take. This allows it so that if one branch of the tree gets cut off or doesn't work, you can always pivot to a second branch or a third branch and so on, so that you have multiple different ways to take your research in case one avenue fails, and this allows for great flexibility. What I recommend is that before you even begin your experiments in the first place, you should draw out or write out your tree step by step. What's your pre-processing stage look like? What types of experiments are you going to conduct? And afterwards, list out all of the example tests, statistical tests that you will run in your data analysis phase. And then just go down the list. If one doesn't work, try the other one, or maybe both of them work or all of them work, and you can report all of the results that you have. But make sure that you have a very clear experimental paradigm before even begin starting your research so that you know exactly what direction you want to take your analysis in. So one example that I'm going to cite about how I personally built an experimental paradigm is through my research at Vanderbilt. In my research at Vanderbilt, I was studying how the respiratory response function for fMRI plots differ 
as somebody ages. The respiratory response function is basically a graph that can predict what someone's fMRI bold signal or blood oxygenation level dependent signal will look like based on their breathing patterns. And the way that I created my respiratory response function or RRF analysis was actually based on a paper that I read about the hemodynamic response function, or this function basically predicts how the fMRI signal would change given a stimulus. So the HRF or hemodynamic response function is slightly different from the RRF, but the analysis that these researchers conducted with the HRF really inspired my research and analysis for the RRF study that I was conducting. For example, both HRF and RRFs have very similar graph shapes, but the researchers looked at how the peak altitude for that graph changed as a function of age, and similarly how the trough changed as a function of age, and the amount of time that it took to get to that peak and to get to that trough, and how that changed as a function of age. And I took those similar analyses that the researchers conducted and applied that to an RRF by looking at how the peak RRF changed as a function of age, or the peak trough of the RRF changed as a function of age. So I took a lot of inspiration from this other paper, and they really guided me to the different analyses that I conducted. I would not have a clear sense of direction if it wasn't for this paper, but because I read this paper, I created an experimental paradigm where I knew exactly what sort of analyses and statistical tests that I wanted to conduct, and that gave me a really clear sense of direction for my research at the end. Now, you may be asking, how do I find motivation to read papers in the first place? After all, research papers are really long and tedious, and it's quite easy to burn out by reading papers. And trust me, I've been there before. The best method that I can recommend for how to read papers and stay engaged with this process is to be as active as possible. You don't just want to be passively reading papers and not doing anything with that information. You want to be doing things while reading this paper. For example, you can use a referencing tool such as Mendeley, EndNote, or Zotoro. I will talk about these in a further uh, episode, but basically you can use these tools to save the citation down in a database and start highlighting important information that you find in these papers so that you can use them later. I also recommend pasting meaningful quotes from these papers in an Excel sheet, maybe presenting these papers in journal clubs that your lab shares. Perhaps share articles or interesting quotes from these papers that really inspired you. Share those quotes and articles with your other lab members. This allows you to get your name out there in the lab so that other graduate students who might take inspiration from this paper can share what they found and they learned from this paper with you and can help you with your research. Be active with the paper reading process so that you can stay engaged and not just passively burn out from reading too many papers. What I also recommend is that you set aside a small amount of time every day just for reading papers, maybe just 15 to 30 minutes, but a small amount of time and really focus on one paper at a time, right? If you just have a whole sheet of papers that you have to read, that gets really overwhelming. So start one step at a time. Set a goal for yourself every day to read one paper in 20 to 30 minutes and really get the gist of it. To get started, I highly recommend the Pomodoro technique, which a lot of productivity influencers have recommended in the past, which is basically set aside 25 minutes at first to just focus on your paper with zero distractions. And after that, take a five minute break and then repeat that cycle. 
When you repeat the cycle enough, you will reach a flow state, hopefully, where you're just completely zoned into that paper and nothing else really matters. And this flow state is where you really achieve your highest level of productivity. So set a small amount of time every day just for your papers and really get started with the Pomodoro technique to reach that flow state, to reach the zone. Moreover, when you're reading papers, I would really recommend that you crank up the intensity for reading these papers during the pre-processing stage of your research. As I mentioned in last episode, the pre-processing stage is going to be the most tedious, boring, just long stretch stage of your research where you're going to have the most amount of free time. And during this time, pre-processing, which is actually relatively early in your research, I would get caught up on papers and read as much as possible because at that stage, you're not really going to be doing much else with your research. You're not going to be conducting experiments or doing any data analysis. You're most likely just going to run some code. That code's going to run in the background for a couple days, maybe even weeks, and you're not really going to have a lot to do. So during that time, I highly recommend you crank up the intensity with your paper reading process and really try to understand the experimental paradigms of researchers that did similar studies that you're currently doing in the past. All right, so that's reading papers. And as I said earlier, reading papers is a great way for you to formulate an experimental paradigm and create that tree for the steps that you wanna take in your research. What I also recommend that you do if you're just stuck in the pre-results phase is to try to create some graphs or visuals regarding what information you already have. And maybe that gives you some sort of inspiration about what types of analyses to conduct. So for example, with my RRF study that I did at Vanderbilt, at first I didn't exactly know what I was trying to look for for these RFs. This was before I actually read the paper. So what I did was I just plotted all of the RRFs between different age groups, right? So I had one RRF plot for all the participants between 30 to 45, one of them for participants between 45 and 60, and one of them for participants 60 and up. And what I realized myself was after graphing these RFs, I noticed that there was a lot more variability among the RFs and the older participants than there were in the younger participants. And I would not have known that simply by just looking at the numbers. I only knew that once I created the visuals. So what I would recommend that you do is with any sort of results, any sort of numbers that you have, try making a visual out of them. Make a graph. If you don't know how to uh, make graphs out of like Python, MATLAB, or R, I'd recommend just starting with Excel. Just insert a chart and just see the results there. And maybe that gives you some sort of inspiration. Maybe there's a variance change, or maybe the means between two different data groups don't exactly look the same, or there's something that stands out to you. That should give you some sort of inspiration about the different types of analyses that you will want to conduct later on. So really try to create those graphs or visuals because that helps you out so much more than just looking at the pure numbers themselves. Another reason why you may be stuck in the pre-results phase is simply because the data that you collected is bad or the data set that you're using is not clean and maybe you need to pivot to something else. And actually, more likely than not, this is very, very common and probably means that your pre-processing just was not strict enough. So for an example, one time I was working at my lab in Vanderbilt and I was looking at a few ways to correct this warping that was occurring or this distortion that was uh, that was frequent in my, D, uh, in my fMRI studies. 
And for some reason, I just could not correct the warping. So my fMRI data just didn't look clean. And I tried so many different techniques and the fMRI just still didn't look clean. And eventually, I talked with my PI about this and we came to the conclusion that simply the data that I was using just was not good. And that's okay. And more likely than not, this is not your fault because the data acquisition just was not robust enough. So in that case, if you're really stuck on the pre-processing or coming up with results, one big reason for this may just be because your data is not clean. And I would try to bring this up with your PI so that you guys can have better data and more easily come up with results. So that summarizes the entire pre-results hurdles phase and how to overcome those results. So just to briefly recap, one, it's very important that you come up with an experimental paradigm so that you have a direction with your research and you can create this by reading papers. When reading papers, if you don't have motivation, probably that's because you're not engaged enough with the process. Be engaged. Build a database of papers that you've read so far, highlight, paste meaningful quotes, share papers with your lab members. Just be active with your paper reading process so that you don't passively burn out. Set a small amount of time every day just for papers and use the Pomodoro technique to really reach a flow state so that you're at peak productivity. Really crank up the intensity with your paper reading in the pre-processing stage of your research because this is the time that you're going to have the most available free time just to read papers. If you're really stuck on coming up with results, try creating graphs or visuals with what you already have. This can give you a lot of inspiration with further analyses to take in the future. And finally, it's not necessarily your fault that you can't come up with the results. Maybe it's just the data that you're using is not clean, in which case I would recommend pivoting to another data set or reacquiring the entire data in the first place. All right, those are the pre-result hurdles that you might face and how can you overcome those hurdles. Now we will talk about post-results hurdles, meaning once you've gotten results, maybe they aren't significant or you don't necessarily know how to interpret them. And guess what? A lot of times this is fine. Post-result hurdles are much easier to deal with than pre-result hurdles because at least you have something, right? Maybe it's not significant or you don't know what to do with this data, but you have data that is somewhat meaningful. Right. You didn't have this data before. No other researchers have published this data. This is brand new information. And although you don't know what to do with this information, at least you have something. The reason why it's totally okay to not necessarily know what to do with this data is because a lot of time, the research that gets published in top journals or submitted to conferences are exploratory findings. They're not necessarily significant. We don't really know what to do with them, but they're published because they're novel data. Right. So just because you have data and you don't exactly know what to do with it, that's fine. A lot of successful research in the past has also dealt with this. And that's the entire purpose of research and engaging with the scientific community in the first place. Research is highly collaborative. And that's really purposeful because sometimes even though one type of researcher, like a computer scientist, has some data, they don't necessarily know what to do with it. So they pass it on to someone else in the scientific community, such as a biologist or a neuroscientist, and that person really knows how to interpret that data. So just because you don't know how to interpret that data doesn't necessarily mean that nobody knows how to interpret that data, which is, which is fine because you can still publish your findings and someone else will hopefully look at your findings and be able to expand upon it. 
This idea of not exactly being able to interpret your results is really prevalent even in the research that I'm currently conducting at Boys Town. So for example, I've read a lot of different papers finding significant neuro-oscillatory changes with, that are paired with different events that researchers have found with MEG. So for example, like in the encoding phase of a working memory task, we see a strong alpha and beta desynchronization, right? But they don't exactly know what is the, the neurobiology backing behind that. We don't know how the neurotransmitters are affected with working memory, et cetera, right? And these scientists at Boys Town can only speculate because at the end of the day, they're MEG scientists. They're not necessarily neurochemistry or neurobiology scientists, which is why when we publish these papers, other researchers such as neuroscientists or neurobiologists or neurochemists will take our data and then interpret it. So for example, maybe with the desynchronization in alpha and beta, there's some sort of change in GABA or some other neurotransmitter. Moreover, maybe you have results, but they aren't significant. And that's also okay. You have to realize that a vast majority of times in research, your experiments will actually fail unless you're replicating someone else's findings. So one thing that you should do is to tell yourself that this is okay and that it's just part of the research process. Moreover, make sure you give yourself flexibility to pivot your research question in the first place. You don't always have to be so set on finding significant results in one particular experiment. At the end of the day, this is what you have your experimental paradigm tree for. If one experiment fails, you pivot to the next one. And if that one fails, you pivot to the next one and then the next one until you finally get an experiment that produces significant results. If experiment A wasn't significant, but was what you were hard set on trying to prove significant in the first place, but experiment B was significant, even though you weren't really expecting it to be, then just pivot your research question to experiment B, and that's fine. And this, you can use this as motivation for your next research project. Maybe find a research project to explain, for example, why experiment A wasn't significant, but experiment B was. Try to find a correlation between some other factor and the significance between two experiments, and that's your next research project, right? So use these research failures, quote unquote, as your motivation for your next research project because you can then try to explain why certain things work and certain things don't work. So that's the post-results phase. If you're struggling in the post-results phase because you cannot interpret one particular finding, that's okay because a lot of times findings are purely exploratory and other scientists will try to interpret them. You can still get them published and submit them to a conference. Most of the times, experiments will fail and tell yourself that this is okay and part of the process. You just need to have some sort of backup and this backup is created with the experimental design tree. If one experiment fails, pivot to the next one and use your experimental failures as motivation for your next project to explain why certain things fail and why certain experiments worked and try to find correlations that will explain your findings. Now you're listening to part two of the Lab Life podcast, where I discuss my weekly research updates as a summer intern at Boys Town National Research Hospital Institute for Human Neuroscience. This week was very eventful. So it started out with me completing the trial and channel rejection. So last episode, I talked about one stage in the pre-processing of channel rejection, which is basically finding certain sensors in the MEG that are faulty and removing them from the analysis. 
I also meant to talk about trial rejection, but due to some complexity, um, I decided to not talk about it. But I'm going to briefly mention what trial rejection is here. So by trial, I, that's also synonymous with epoch. And when epoch basically is um, one iteration of the Sternberg working memory task. So one iteration of the participant looking at the six letters and determining which one of the letters that they are shown belong to the original six. That's one epoch, or also synonymous with trials. Now, certain times, certain trials will be faulty because maybe the participant moved too much or maybe there were too many external artifacts, and that trial just has to be removed. And this whole stage of removing certain trials or epochs and channels is known as trial and channel rejection, which in our lab is performed using something called the artifact scan tool, which is a software in MATLAB that helps automate this process. So this week, I finally finished up the artifact scan tool and removed trials and channels that were faulty from each of the participants during all three of their turns in the experiment with the TDCS or transcranial direct simulation on their left parietal lobe, right parietal lobe, and a sham or a placebo. After performing the artifact scan tool, it's important to see whether there were certain biases that we had to correct for. So remember, this experiment that I'm trying to conduct is relating how TDCS impacts working memory. However, those results can be biased with what happened during my artifact scan tool. So for example, a bias that may occur would have been if I removed more channels for TDCS than I did for sham, or I accepted more trials for TDCS than sham. Those are all instances of bias that may occur in my experiment, which would have really skewed my data. And if I was ever to submit this to a paper, the journal editors would have picked up on this and they really would not have liked it. And they may have told me to completely restart the experiment in the first place just to remove biases, and that would just be a huge pain. So it's really important to see if you may have accidentally introduced any biases to your experiment that you have to correct for. So this week, I also made sure to write down all of the potential biases that I needed to correct for, including the number of channels removed, the number of trials that accepted, um, and the threshold criteria for which I determined that a trial or a channel would have to be removed. All these different factors, I wrote them all down and I performed statistical analyses between all these factors and the different conditions. So parietal simulation on the left, right, and sham. Fortunately, I found no existing biases, which means that I can continue on with my research without having to restart the artifact scan tool process. Now, not all the time will people get this lucky. In fact, my research mentor um, that's helping me work on my research project, he's doing a really similar experiment with how working memory correlates with age. And he actually found, unsurprisingly, that as somebody ages, the reaction time slows down. And this is a potential bias that may be introduced in his experiment. Fortunately, it's not a very significant bias. All he needs to do is slightly change the window in the data that he's looking at per participant. So what I mean by this, like young people, they answer relatively quicker. So the window is slightly earlier that he has looked at, but older people answer maybe slower. So he has to shift their window to a later time period and analyze that data. 
but he needs to make sure to correct for this because reaction time is a bias for working memory, right? And if he didn't correct for this, then his data would have been slightly skewed. So it's really important to remove any external biases that are not central to the data that you're actually trying to analyze. And for me, that's how working memory changes with the type of simulation. So that's one thing that I did this week. I removed biases. Another thing that I did this week was I plotted my preliminary results. So as I mentioned in part one, if you're stuck with your research, you don't really know how to proceed, you should try to at least visualize something. And that's exactly what actually happened with me this week, because I was running a lot of um, code that took a really long time to process through all the participants. And during that time, I really didn't have anything to do. So I wanted to really do something. And what I did was I started plotting some preliminary results. So I used a programming language to plot these tools called R, and I've never actually used R before, but I found out through a little bit of Google searching and some YouTube tutorials that R is a very powerful and useful language for plotting. It's highly intuitive. And R has this library called ggplot2, which I find to be a very easy to use tool that one can use to plot data. And essentially the way it works, I'm not gonna to get too into the weeds of it, but ggplot essentially allows you to layer multiple aspects of plots on top of each other. So for example, one layer of the plot would be the type of plot that you're actually trying to create. So a scatter plot, a box plot, a violin plot, etc. One layer would be the theme of the plot. Uh, another layer would be what you call the axes labels and, and so on. So I found ggplot to be really useful and I plotted some other preliminary results in my findings. And specifically, I created a few violin plots that explained the correlation between working memory accuracy and response time and how that changes based on the stimulus, whether it's the parietal lobe stimulation on the left, the right, or sham. And actually, unfortunately, I found that there was no statistically significant correlation between the stimulation type and reaction time or accuracy. But that's okay, because that wasn't ultimately the end goal of my of my study. I was trying to find out the neuro-oscillatory dynamics and how that changes with stimulation time, not necessarily the accuracy or response time. In fact, from reading papers that are similar to the study that I'm currently conducting, I kind of saw this coming, because a lot of the papers found very mixed results between if uh, TDCS actually impacts working memory accuracy. And in my particular case, it didn't, but that's okay, right? So in my experimental tree, this first branch may have failed, but I know that I can take, I can do other studies such as looking at the neural oscillatory changes with TDCS and how that changes. So even though one of my branches was cut off, doesn't work, I can pivot to something else. Another thing that I got out of plotting these um, violin plots was that I noticed that there was a slight variance difference between uh, the TDCS and the left, right, and sham. So for example, in TDCS to the right parietal lobe, I found more variation in the accuracy than I did in the left parietal lobe. And this is something that was really interesting that they didn't expect. And I wouldn't have gotten this if I hadn't plotted my data in the first place. And this is one avenue that I may want to take my research. I may want to examine why it is exactly that I saw more variation when you stimulate the right parietal lobe than the left parietal lobe. 
And finally, I actually participated in somebody else's study this week as part of Boys Town. So this is actually one of the reasons why I chose to participate in Boys Town, this research program in particular, because they have multiple different studies that are going on and they collect their own data. So I was actually a participant in somebody else's study. And this study in particular related how cerebral palsy impacts certain brain dynamics. So they, they required me to perform a lot of different tasks and they monitored how I would react to these tasks. So they made me perform a lot of walking tasks, such as speed walking, walking backwards, walking on stairs. And one thing they were really looking for were like how my muscle contractions worked when I performed these tasks. And another thing that they made me do was they, they made me perform these surprising movements. So in one instance, they made me walk on a treadmill, but they were constantly in inducing this electrical stimulus to my right ankle and just shocking my leg every few seconds. And this is a surprise that I don't see coming. And they really want to see how my brain adapts to this surprise. They hypothesize that with cerebral palsy patients, they're not able to adapt as well as healthy controls. And this is one of the things that they wanted to test. I also uh, participated in both an MEG and an MRI brain scan. And in, the MR and in the MEG, they made me do both resting state and certain tasks that also involved these surprise movements um, where they essentially shocked my leg. Um, and this was like the surprise movement and they saw how the brain dynamics changed with that. And then finally, I sat an MRI. Um, I was really excited to do the MRI study because I wanted to really see um, my brain scan and, you know, take a in-depth look into what my brain looked like. And uh, fortunately, I was actually able to get my own brain scan. Um, the researchers at Boys Town were nice enough to provide me a nifty file, which allowed me to view my brain scan from all the slices, uh, coronal, horizontal, and uh, sagittal, very, very clearly in high definition. Um, one thing that I will say about the MRI, however, it was a pretty brutal experience, especially for me. I'm, uh, I'm relatively big. I'm six foot one, around 185 pounds. And sitting inside or laying down inside the MRI, uh, I felt very claustrophobic. And I wasn't really claustrophobic before, but laying down in there for over an hour with just these certain tones playing over and over and over again in my ear when the MRI was taking these images. I felt like I was going insane and uh, it was just overall a brutal experience, but I was very happy to have received my actual brain scan at the end of the day. And uh, I spent a lot of time looking at that brain scan and trying to dissect my brain. So that overall was a relatively positive experience. And I'm, I'm overall pretty glad that I participated in the study because it gave me experience with what the data acquisition phase looked like when conducting neuroimaging studies. And um, in case I ever want to do any sort of data acquisition and run my own experiments, I believe this is an important stepping stone for me and it really sheds some light into how the studies are conducted. So yeah, that's what happened this week. So I participated in a study, checked for some biases in my data, plotted some preliminary results. So overall, very productive week. Thanks for tuning in and I'll catch you guys next week with my research updates. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, or whichever platform you are tuning in from. So long for now, and I'll see you next week.